I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Capehart. From controversial court decisions to questionable ethics exercised by its most senior member, national attention on the Supreme Court has never been more intense. And its 6-3 conservative supermajority has shown no qualms about overturning precedent and creating new legal theories to achieve long-held goals of the right. In her new book, Nine Black Robes, Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences, CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic chronicles how we got to this point. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on April 17th, Biskupic gets into the inner workings of the court, the role of the Federalist Society in shaping it, whether Chief Justice John Roberts still has control, and the complicated prominence of Justice Brett Kavanaugh. He is super important. He is he is essentially the ideological center now. So he's got a lot of power as a potential fifth vote in either direction. But one thing that I do point up in the book is this double signaling he does to try to have it a couple, you know, have it two ways. So, Joan, as you write, the rightward shift on the court has been many years in the making. But what made the Trump era so different for the Supreme Court? Well, let's start first with just the sheer number of appointees. He had three Supreme Court justices in just four years. Let's go back to Jimmy Carter, who had none. Uh, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama served two terms apiece, twice the number of years of Donald Trump, and they each only had two apiece. So you think back uh, over like, 20 some years, more than 20 some years, uh, well back to Jimmy Carter, and you have only a total of four Democratic appointees. Meanwhile, you had Donald Trump with three in just four years. So the justices themselves uh, are significant. Then the second thing would be the kinds of positions he was pushing through his solicitor general, you know, uh, very strong anti-regulatory moves, uh, pushing to diminish individual rights, uh, making headway. Uh, particularly on immigration right away from the start. And then finally, Jonathan, uh, Donald Trump's attitude toward the judiciary as a whole. Just think of how much he tried to undermine the independence of the judiciary, saying things like, you know, it was an Obama judge that did that to me, or just wait till I get to the Supreme Court. I'll win there. He had a way of acting as if these judges and justices were his. Right. Um, yeah, he figured that the judiciary, these folks he appointed to the Supreme Court and throughout the judiciary um, were to do his bidding. But that gets to another question about why conservatives and folks on the right supported someone like Donald Trump, who just given what we knew about them in the past, that he's not someone they should have supported. Was there basically an implicit deal between uh, Trump and and the right to put to have him be president so that they could get the judicial appointments in place to carry out what they most wanted to do, and that was overturning Roe v. Wade. You know, I, definitely that was part of his whole ascension as president. Just think of the timing of his candidacy. Antonin Scalia dies on February thirteenth, two thousand sixteen. Donald Trump's campaign is really taking off. Eventually, he gets the uh, Republican nomination that summer. And he uses the Scalia vacancy as part of his campaign. Remember what he did in May of 2016 when he came out with that list of potential All Supreme right. Court 
appointees. Nobody had done that before. So that became a centerpiece of his campaign. And he was signaling to the uh, the right wing and or to a broader Republican base, vote for me. I will I will deliver the Supreme Court for you. And so many of the names on that first list were names that would have been uh, easily appointees of a George W. Bush. You know, they were all uh, with, I think, one exception, lower court judges. They were people within the main. But that's because those were names that were developed by the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society. Donald Trump essentially took the names that these um, uh, Republican advocates gave him and put them out there. And that inspired confidence among uh, Republican Party leaders that Donald Trump would at least, when it comes to the judiciary, do something that was very familiar and desirable for them. Mm -hmm. And I'm great. Great. You mentioned the Federalist Society because in order to understand um, the you know, conservative judges on the bench, you have to understand the Federalist Society, but also Leonard Leo. Talk about the two of them and the role they played in shaping the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court itself. Sure. I, I cannot overstate the effectiveness of Leonard Leo. Uh, the Federalist Society, for so our audience knows, it was founded in the early 1980s. Uh, Antonin Scalia, in fact, was a faculty advisor as he was a, a professor at the University of Chicago. It was founded by three undergrad uh, people who had been together as undergraduates at Yale. Uh, one stays at Yale for law school. The other two go to the University of Chicago. And, you know, Ronald Reagan has just won. So they're thinking we should have more of a voice on campus. And, you know, campuses were dominated by liberals at the time and arguably, you know, still are. And they they decided they wanted to continue this debating society that they had at Yale uh, back when they were undergrads. And so it started, Jonathan, as more of a forum for debate. At the very first Federalist Society meeting, Stephen Breyer was there, as was Robert Bork and uh, Antonin Scalia, who at the time, as I said, was just a law professor. But, but it grew in its force and impact and its networking effect when Leonard Leo came, comes on in the uh, early 90s. You know, it had been building over the years, just growing in strength and momentum. And uh, Leonard Leo comes on in about 1991. And he, as you can tell from the book, and as you know from so many stories about Leonard Leo, is just a superb networker and money maker. You know, he, um, I know the Post has done really good investigative pieces on him, as have others. And I spent a lot of time interviewing him for this book. And he, as a high schooler, his name was, you know, Mr. Moneybags, because he could raise dough. And he has raised a lot of dough for the Federalist Society and for other very conservative causes. So every Republican appointee sitting on that court right now was screened in one way or another by the Federalist Society, including John Roberts, who met with Leonard Leo. John Roberts probably would have been appointed without any kind of seal of approval from the Federalist Society, but maybe the others would not have been. Um, so the Federalist Society is one stamp of approval, but another right. stamp of approval is uh, Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky. And you brought up 2016 and the vacancy um, that was on the court after the death of Justice Scalia. Um, and it was in uh, 2016 when Mitch McConnell was then right. Senate Majority Leader um, who refused to give Merrick Garland a hearing when President Obama nominated him to the court um, to replace Scalia. Uh, what impact did that have, not granting Merrick Garland 
a, a hearing and there, thereby preventing him from joining the court, what did that have on the balance of power in the, on the court, but also on the norms and standards and perception of the court? It was, it's, it's been everything, Jonathan. Uh, you, you pair that with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I can't think of two more important episodes in the life of the Supreme Court in the past five years. Uh, so it, it, this is such a great tale because Mitch McConnell pulled off something he wasn't even sure he was going to be able to do, but he did. It's President's Day weekend, February 13th. It's a Saturday. Uh, Justice Scalia has died. Uh, Mitch McConnell gets word through somebody in Scalia's family with the channel of Leonard Leo. That's how he finds mm. out. He finds out through uh, Leonard Leo's connections, and Leonard Leo obviously went way back with Mitch McConnell. And he decides, Mitch McConnell is in, uh, Ver I think he stopped over in, in the Virgin Islands, wherever he was going for this great vacation. Uh, he, he decides right then and there, he's going to tell everybody, we're not going to do anything to fill that seat. Now that's February. And of course the election's not until November of 2016. And he said later that if the, the uh, Senate had been in session, this was President's Day weekend, if the Senate had been in session, he might not have been able to pull that off because some of his Republican colleagues would have grumbled as they kind of did, but they weren't all together. You know, he was able to take this action and then get people and get his colleagues in line over the upcoming days and weeks and look at how effective it was. Now, the, the Democrats pushed back to an extent, but not very much. I remember that um, at the Democratic convention, Hillary Clinton and her people never even mentioned Merrick Garland's pending nomination at the time. So everyone kept thinking, well, Hillary Clinton will win. It won't matter that, Merrick, that uh, Mitch McConnell is blocking the seat. But obviously she didn't. And Mitch McConnell's blocking of that seat made all the difference then in an appointment of Neil Gorsuch. Now, it would have so swung the court to have had a Democrat, uh, a Democratic appointee succeeding um, uh, Antonin Scalia. But, and, you know, someone like Elena Kagan or Stephen Breyer, they were all looking forward to possibly then, you know, a liberal dominance. But that didn't happen, of course. And it was a switch of Neil Gorsuch for. Um, for Scalia back in, then he, uh, Neil Gorsuch comes on in April of 2017 after Donald Trump has taken the White House. You know, you raised, you just mentioned something that I did not even put together or realize. And I remember where I was when Justice Scalia, Scalia oh, yeah. passed away. But the fact that Congress was in recess yeah. is what is probably the most pivotal thing. Cause you could imagine if Congress was in session and reporters were all around asking various members of the Senate, well, where are you on this or what should happen? That could have boxed that. Mitch McConnell probably wouldn't have been able to do what he did. Yeah, and you know what else was happening that night? Since you remember it, do you remember there was a Republican debate in South Carolina? And uh -huh. um, Don McGahn is also in this loop. They're all together. You probably know, you know, there's that chapter in the book called The Triumvirate, and that's Mitch McConnell, Don McGahn, and Leonard Leo. And so also that fateful night of February 13th, 2016, where we all remember where we were, um, he, Don McGahn gets in touch with Donald Trump. Don McGahn at this point is um, his, um, uh, you know, he's like a key advisor because obviously he, he's about to be, he eventually becomes White House counsel. But at that point, he's, you know, a lawyer to the uh, campaign. He gets in touch with Donald Trump and he says, here's some names you can mention. You can say, you know, here are some people I'd put on the court. 
He mentions, if I remember right, Judge Pryor and Judge Sykes. Again, two people who probably any Republican president would have had on a list. And then he says, delay, what Donald Trump says is delay, delay, delay uh, during that debate. And again, setting the tone of whoever President Obama names, and eventually it was Merrick Garland about a month later, uh, no action, no action at all. Mm -hmm. um, also, you want to point out that uh, then leader, Majority Leader McConnell's rationale was, well, we should let the American people decide at the ballot box who the president is to fill this um, vacancy. As you pointed out, this was February, the election was in November, but then fast forward four years and a, a Justice Ginsburg passes away and there's an opening on the court mere weeks before the election and Mitch McConnell, uh, Leader McConnell, reverses course and pushes through with the quickness of the confirmation of Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett. That's right. That's why I say that it's a real match set. And then we have, you know, Neil Gorsuch, as I said, was a conservative swap for a conservative. But when we get to Amy Coney Barrett for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it's a whole different wow. game here. And so Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies uh, on uh, September 18th. And, you know, we're so close to the election. Uh, as soon as she's buried, uh, Donald Trump uh, says that he's actually, Donald Trump announced Amy Coney Barrett's name, if I remember right, before uh, Justice Ginsburg was buried. It was, um, yes. it was after her, she was, her body was uh, on, she was in the Capitol, remember? And yep. they had had the ceremony. And then as she drives away, I remember as a reporter getting the word who he had chosen. And so, you know, it's just about a week later. And then her confirmation hearings are held pretty quickly. And then I believe it was October 26th that she takes her seat. And, you know, that's how close we were to the election, you know, in early November. Oh, we can talk about the impact on, on the Dobbs decision, but I'm having a good time talking about the personalities involved here. Yeah. So let's keep going. Let's talk about key, two key figures on the court, Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Clarence Thomas. Um, they, uh, Justice Thomas has been the focus of a ProPublica expose on his relationship and business dealings with a, with a billionaire donor. Um, and this raises uh, an, an audience question. This question comes up from Deanna McMahon sure. from California. Deanna asks, what's going on okay. with John Roberts? No public statement about the right or wrong of Clarence Thomas's activities. It seems that he has given up leadership of the court. You know, I do think John Roberts could have been more vocal, but he's got, he's got a, he's got a weak hand with his colleagues. Yeah. Uh, you know, they have struggled behind the scenes and are still struggling behind the scenes on some sort of formal ethics code. And I believe that Chief Justice Roberts would like them to adopt that. But you can't handle that the way you'd handle a case. You can't say we're going to have a six to three, case, you know, ethics code. Six of us will abide by it and three won't. You know, so that's a real problem. And I think people have looked to John Roberts for some sort of moral leadership here. But uh, just as we saw in the Dobbs decision, how he can't control everything, he definitely can't control everything behind the scenes uh, when it comes to off-bench behavior, too. So let's talk about the fact that he can't control things behind the yeah. scenes when it comes to the Dobbs decision with this six to three supermajority, conservative supermajority on the court. 
is he chief justice in name only? No, because, okay, so he lost Dobbs. You know, he, he got part of what he wanted in Dobbs. He wanted to uphold the Mississippi ban on abortion at 15 weeks of pregnancy. He was with that. He just did not want them to go so far as to completely roll back Roe v. Right. Wade, nearly half century of uh, reproductive rights precedent. He just said, you know, he was somebody who was never favored abortion rights, but he definitely did not want to roll it back. And understandably so. I think you see the ramifications right. throughout the country, both legally and politically. But he um, he didn't have the votes. But Jonathan, think of everything else that he's gotten. He's you know, he's got a majority on how he feels about rolling back racial remedies. He has a majority for lowering the wall of separation between church and state. He's definitely with the majority in rolling back regulatory protections for the environment and um, uh, public health protections. So he's and he was with the majority on on the Second Amendment. So I would say this is still John Roberts court, but he did lose a significant mm -hmm case, a case that I have called the, uh, the defining case of his generation, but, and that, that truly was a loss for him, but he certainly prevailed in many other ways. Were you surprised, given how um, extensively and how long you've covered the Supreme Court, were you surprised that uh, this Supreme Court overturned a precedent, a 50-year-old precedent like Roe versus Wade? I, okay, I used to say they never would do it, but once 2018 came along and Brett Kavanaugh succeeded Anthony Kennedy, and then especially when Amy Coney Barrett succeeded Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I started thinking maybe they will. I kept, I actually, I was one person who kept thinking the chief might pull out some sort of compromise at the very end in 2022. But Jonathan, I used to say they'll never overturn Roe because I thought it would have such political repercussions as well as legal repercussions. And, you know, just think of the other Republican appointees who over the years voted to uphold Roe, even though they said they would have never they wouldn't have wanted to be part of the 1973 court that approved it. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, Justice Anthony Kennedy, you know, they were people who voted to uphold it, even though they didn't like it. But these are this is a different kind of conservative now. Um, and what about the impact of the leak, the leak of the Alito draft? Sure. Sure. It froze the votes. OK, so, you know, I would kill to know who leaked it. You know, I, I, I don't know. The court doesn't know, it claims. Uh, and I, I kind of think after all the investigation they went through that if they knew they would tell us. But I do not know who leaked it. But I can tell you what I believe it has been the fact, especially since I was tracking John, John Roberts during that time and trying to figure out whether he was making headway. And he was he, he, he kept working and working. And remember, that was a May 2nd leak. They had until the end of June to produce that opinion. And, you know, but once that leaked, it froze everybody in place. It was hard for any of the other justices to move over if they ever would have. If Brett Kavanaugh would have ever possibly moved over, it became impossible once it was so public. Uh, let's uh, keep going down the list of personalities here. You mentioned Justice Brett Kavanaugh. He had a rough confirmation hearing in 2019. What role has he played on the court? And talk to us about his desire to be liked. <laughs> okay, first of all, his role, he is super important. He is, he is essentially the ideological center now. So he's got a lot of power as a potential fifth vote 
in either direction. Now, he usually does stick with his conservative fold, uh, and but sometimes he has joined the chief in moving over to the left. So he has a very powerful vote. Well, let's start with that. But one thing that I do point up in the book is this double signaling he does to try to have it a couple you know, have it two ways. He wants to he'll vote against somebody, but then write an opinion that says, but, you know, I respect their point of view, even though he's voting against them. And, you know, I, I think one of the main examples of that was in the uh, LGBTQ t- case of 2020, the uh, when when the majority by six, a six to three vote expanded the understanding of Title seven of the 1964 Civil Rights Act to cover gay and transgender uh workers who face bias that they could use Title VII to sue. And Justice Gorsuch writes the opinion, you know, and the chief signs on. So you have two conservatives signing on to this opinion. And Brett Kavanaugh doesn't. And Brett Kavanaugh, but he writes this opinion saying, you know, but I I think that people with the LGBTQ community should feel such, you know, pride in what they've accomplished. And uh, this is not to diminish what they've done. So he had a way of always writing that kind of sentiment into into decisions. And and one thing I point out in the book is when I discovered that he had, uh, do you want me to, uh, actually, John, yeah, should I bother even getting into the Department of Commerce case? Um, well, we've got, we've got less than 10 minutes and we still have to get through okay, a, a couple bother. more things. But let's say there are enough, ex- <laughs> there are other examples in the book. Right. That? That's great. That's a, that's a great tease for, for nine black robes. Okay. Next personality, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. Last year, she became the first black woman ever confirmed uh-huh. to the Supreme Court. How has she changed the dynamics of the court, if at all? Well, she has. First of all, she's just right in there immediately during oral arguments. You know, I just came from there this morning to, you know, as I was listening to cases. And, you know, she's she was a district court judge, as you remember, Jonathan. And she still has a bit of that district court judge thing going on of asking lots of questions, uh, having lots of questions, and sometimes not being aware of, you know, the time that her questions can dominate, but they do. And they're good questions. She's there prepared. And she's, uh, so she's, she's not, you don't feel any kind of freshman effect here uh, for the newest justice. But I have to say, we don't have many data points yet. She hasn't been, um, you know, they haven't, they haven't, hand down many opinions at all. Our audience should know that they'll be in on Tuesday and Wednesday with opinions, but they are way behind on, on the number of opinions they've been giving. But so she hasn't been writing a lot yet, so we don't know exactly where she'll fall. I would say just as a, at first blush, she seems to be aligning more with Justice Sonia, so, Justice Sonia Sotomayor than with Justice Elena Kagan. Uh, Justice Kagan could sometimes straddle the middle a little bit to work deals. But um, but I act, frankly, I think she'll be much more uh, uh, sticking with the left with this new dynamic on the court, too. Well, just in terms of personality type, I mean, you write um, in in, um, in your book that Justice Sotomayor is the one who has been very vocal in her in her opinions and in her dissents, really taking it to the other side and the other side's arguments. And so from if I'm hearing you right, um, in Justice uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson, Justice Sotomayor now has backup. Oh yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point because you know when I talk about so much of what happened in the Trump years, 
you know, it was just a Sotomayor who would call him out on racism. She would call him out and uh, much more than any of her colleagues. And, you know, obviously Donald Trump isn't there right now, but uh, I see I see Justice Jackson as being uh, perhaps blunter in her writing than uh, that, for example, her predecessor, Stephen Breyer, was. Mm -hmm. All right. We got I got to get you on two things in the four and a half minutes that we have left. OK, Talk, there's another factor we uh, that folks should know about the shadow docket. Explain the significance right. and why there's so much concern about the power it has. OK, so it's essentially the emergency docket the, where the justice is here, rightly so, emergency cases, you know, coming up from death penalty, you know, last ditch death penalty appeals trying to stop an execution. Or, for example, like what we've got now with the emergency situation for the uh, medication abortion. That's right. coming up to the Supreme Court in an emergency posture. And for so many uh, so many recent years, the justices had been essentially deciding the merits of cases on what has become known as the shadow docket because it's a it's a way that the justices resolve cases without full briefing and oral arguments. I do have to say, Jonathan, they have seemed more mindful of trying to slow down uh, emergency cases that don't involve, for example, death, death row inmates, and to actually hear oral arguments and resolve cases. Because a major criticism of the shadow docket has been that they're they're making very consequential rulings without full briefing. And these right. are rulings that really affect all of us. And I'll give you an example. You know, the, remember the Texas abortion case, SB8, they initially handled that on their shadow docket. They eventually did hear it in the uh, fall of uh, 2021. But that was, you know, how serious can you get a six-week ban on abortions in, in Texas? Uh, and there was a lot of pressure on to... to it no, will like still it. handle a lot of their business comes up through this emergency docket. And the reason it's called the shadow docket is because they can act in ways that often don't seem fully transparent. Right. Um, so um, you pointed out something that I, did, I didn't know, that the Supreme Court is called the Marble Palace. And so from the outside, <laughs> it seems like um, a particularly chaotic time in the Marble Palace. But from the inside, are these external conditions even being felt? I think I think they're feeling certainly they felt the pro protest. Just think of how they had to ring that building with barricades and razor wire. Mm -hmm. um, so they felt that they have they're definitely feeling the criticism over, you know, ethics issues. They're feeling the protests from people still from the uh, Dobbs fallout. You know, several of them had protesters at their homes for for several months. Uh, so but but it is still such a. Uh, reserved place where everything runs, you know, like clockwork. When I was sitting in the courtroom this morning, there it was very quiet. Starts right at 10 a.m. on the dot. There's a certain order to everything. This place is, you know, it, there are so many traditions that in some ways cushion it, that mm -hmm. they are protected from the outside within those marble walls. But more and more, I think they're facing a scrutiny. They're facing much more public scrutiny, much more watchdog scrutiny, much more congressional scrutiny, and much more media scrutiny. They used to escape a lot of that that the other branches had. Mm -hmm. um, we are over time. I'm going to squeeze in this one last audience okay. question. And um, real quickly, from Trevor Nevy from Washington, D.C., and a great okay. Washington question. 
Are there any rumors about who will be the next to retire from the court? That's a great question because we always think of retirements, but I think we're set for a while. I actually think we're not going to see any retirement for, well, fingers crossed. Let me just say that. Fingers crossed. We've, you know, it's been unusual to have essentially four new justices in the past five years, right? Right. I mean, I can tell you it is. I don't have to say, right? It is very unusual. (laughs) I don't think we're going to see anybody go out willingly. Definitely none of those Republicans are going to leave under President Joe Biden's watch. Right. And I do not believe uh, the two more senior Democrats, uh, Justice Sotomayor or Kagan, are going anywhere yet. So no retirements in the near future, Trevor. So I, there was so many more questions that I had, you know, about you know other precedents like Obergefell and Griswold and potential for Congress acting on ethics, um, ethics rules for the Supreme Court. But we are completely out of time. Uh, Joan Biskupic, okay. author of Nine Black Robes, Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences. Thank you so much for coming, uh, for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Capehart J.